Greg. Helen, what's up? You're incredibly far away from me. I know. Although through the magic of technology, it might sound like we are actually sitting together in the same studio. That is just not the case because I am in my new home of Los Angeles and very much missing you and all of my New York friends and colleagues in what I still believe is the greatest city on earth. But I got to tell you, LA's pretty cool. <laughs> it's a pretty good city. So today in the Eater Upsell studio, we are talking with Curtis Stone, handsome Australian chef and proprietor of Gwen and Maud in Los Angeles, and also a famous TV person. And Curtis, we're going to talk to you in a couple of minutes, okay? Just sit tight. Awesome. I won't go anyway. Welcome, Curtis. I like this this setup that we've got now, though. I feel like I should be lying like like on my stomach, on my bed, sort of like curling the phone cable around my finger. Yeah, and maybe I'm like peeling a potato and like the screen is split in half or something. And uh, yeah, it's like a then the credits roll up and like it, a Nancy Myers movie or something written by Nora Ephron. And I was completely wrong. It is a Nora Ephron movie. I think they work together on at least one movie, though. It's funny because Nora Ephron, I think, is in many ways the quintessential New York filmmaker in that category. And Nancy Myers is so L.A. And, and now you and I, yeah. as a podcast co-hosting duo are yeah. are similarly bi-coastal. I'm holding down the New York fort and you are like jazzing it up in the beautiful sunlight of Los Angeles. I, I used to make fun of a lot of things about the LA food scene and the office in New York and make jokes about it, but I'm almost like uh, surprised by how quickly I've sort of caught into all of it in a way where I almost feel like I'm kind of selling out and losing that New York edge that you have as a New York media person. Are you eating avocado toast and grain bowls and and like vegan acai smoothies for every single meal? Not every meal, but I am sampling those things. And you know what the, the difference is, I think? Okay, so now New York right now has a lot of grain bowls and avocado toasts and stuff like that. And I think it maybe is the influence of a few L.A. establishments on a national level, like Squirrel, for example. We talked to Jessica Koslow last season, but... I think it's a different thing to go get a grain bowl at a poke restaurant in Midtown Manhattan than to go to a place like, you know, Squirrel or any of its ilk and to be there and to eat it because it just kind of makes more sense in that environment. And it's just a little bit more of a laid back thing and not so much of like a sort of quantifiable food stuff, I feel like, you know, it's like a reflection of the people that run it and the people that go there or something. You know, that's what they like. That's what they want to like eat. barely been in L.A. for a few months and you already hate New York. This is No, I love New York and I still think it's like the best city ever. But there is a little bit something about that laid back thing that just doesn't, you know, you find pockets of it and maybe lower Manhattan or Brooklyn. I mean, I'm, I, I can't speak to this totally authoritatively. I've only been here for like a month. But like, how do you balance this out, right? Like you, Greg Morbido, you are the most like, you are New York. You know every restaurant and you know everything about this city and you know everything about its history. And and you have left us for Los Angeles. You know what I'm more worried about than anything is just uh, annoying all my friends in New York and them writing me off and thinking that I've like, you know, gone soft and being obnoxious by getting into all this LA shit. It's something I think about at least at I least mean, you've once definitely a day. Like already told me that my grain bowls here in New York are like way less real and authentic and awesome than your grain bowls in LA. So like, yeah, okay, that's a fair worry. Yeah. 
I know. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm I'm uh, I'm losing friends in real time. Are you wearing sunglasses literally right now? I don't now? own a pair of sunglasses, as a matter of fact, but I have thought about purchasing some. Holy but shit! You go to, you go to LA sometimes. You you were you were. I like, do. What, what is your take on on the uh, the scene and the vibe out there? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop like a like a serious mm-hmm. truth bomb, which is I think that LA is by orders of magnitude a better restaurant city than New York. It's a it's a big statement. It's one that I will not uh, agree or disagree with because I really haven't done a thorough enough survey. But um, I think that there is a lot of evidence that points in that direction. But but why specifically? The graph of the quality of the overall restaurant scene in terms of like excitement and density and novelty and just sort of general goodness for New York, like the, the restaurant world in New York right now is is stagnating a little mm-hmm. bit. Like there are moments of brilliance and there are restaurants that are individually really exciting, but like it's it's not 2006 up in here anymore. And at the same time, LA, which I think for a long time was a sort of underappreciated food city, is on the upswing. And maybe like a year or two ago, those two lines crossed. And now LA like is continuing on its upward trend. Like you were talking about like like it's hugely influential, right? Like everyone in New York is copying LA now, which never would have been mm-hmm. the case a couple of years ago. Food is really exciting in LA and and people are excited to appreciate it and you can get really good breakfasts and one thing I always love and still love about New York is like, you know, the the character of the restaurants and the scene and the vibe and stuff like that and you know, there is definitely a little bit of the sizzle factor that I think that New York has better. You know, it has it in spades, and maybe it's the best city in, in America for that that I've been to. But something I do really like about everywhere I've been and and even the trendy places in L.A. is like I hate to say it, but having a little bit of extra space to move around and having a little bit of extra space as a diner is weirdly luxurious and kind of nice. I don't think that's weird at all. Uh, but just like I feel like a lot of times you go into some hot New York bistro downtown and, you know, it's notable for X, Y, and Z reason. And you're like, I have to spend money here and I have to do this. I have to like be the active participant in here or I I should, I need to get out. And uh, I don't know. My impression yeah. is that it's a little bit more relaxed. Yeah. But I mean, also just like the, the, the physical space. I mean, I have a, a fairly sizable ass and I think restaurants in New York have tables that are so close together. And I'm just like, man, I, I'm, I'm going to totally knock someone's water glass over with my ass one of these days. And it is a constant fear that I live with. Yeah. And I don't feel that fear in LA. Like in LA, I'm, I'm free of fear. My ass can get even bigger. If any of our readers out there, listeners, man, think that I need to see something or yeah, that there's something essential experience I need to have. I would love to hear about it. So please email uh, upsell at eater.com. Today in the Eater Upsell studio, we have a chef who is a huge player in the LA scene. He's also a celebrity chef. You've probably seen him on TV, Mr. Curtis Stone. Curtis, welcome to the Eater Upsell. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. So as a tasting menu chef, uh, when there is a new tasting menu in the city where you're in, whether that's L.A. or somewhere you're, you're visiting, do you do you intentionally check it out to see what the, uh, you know? Look, I love eating tasting menus, to be honest. There, there's, there's different types, too. You know, like we talk about them as if they're one thing um, quite often. But you can go and have a 28-course degustation, and you can also go and have a five-course degustation. And um, they're, they're really different. Uh, experiences. But yeah, no, for sure, I, I, I do. I think what's interesting about them for me is that you're sort of saying to the chef, all right, 
you want to orchestrate something, go for it. It's like, it's interesting. You don't go to a concert and get to choose which songs they play, right? But you go out for dinner and you, you want to choose how you eat. And that, I understand that because sometimes that's exactly, you feel like something. You want to go to a certain place to get a certain thing. Um, but I think there's certainly room there as well for a, for a, a dining experience where the chef really thinks it through in as much detail as they can down to where, how you drink, you know, like each course, of course, pairs to something um, delicious to drink. And there's got to be a progression to that for it to really make sense. As a tasting menu chef yourself, when you eat other people's tasting menus, are you like, are you seeing the strings that are holding it all together? Like, are, are you, do you feel like you perceive it in a way that the average diner doesn't? Probably. Yeah. I think as a chef, you sort of sit back and you, you, you could, because you're used to doing the process yourself, you, you're obviously thinking about how they've done it and what decisions they've made and why they've made them. I mean, I have an interesting perspective on it because I went from working in great restaurants my whole life. And the truth is, as a chef, you don't get time to eat in a lot of good restaurants. So as you're asking me how often I eat, I, I don't eat much in Los Angeles, to be honest, because when I'm there, I'm in my restaurant. But when I travel, luckily, I get the opportunity to um, here and there, then of course, I, I, I try and eat out as much as I can. And because I get that opportunity, it does give you a really different perspective, because suddenly you're the diner and not the cook. Um, and I think, you know, it's stuff as simple as serving someone too much food always seems as just a generous, nice thing to do as the cook. But once you're the diner, you're like, it's a horrible experience when you have to unbutton your jeans when you leave the restaurant because you just got fed too much. And if it tastes good, you, you want to keep eating it, right? And there's no worse feeling than that. It's, I actually rather leave a little hungry than a little overfed. Something I love about tasting menus is diners seem to have such varying, you know, opinions on them. Like, you know, I remember in the days when Wiley Dufresne had WD-50, that was the ultimate, like, my mind was blown or I had to go eat a slice of pizza around the corner when it was done, you know? Right. Uh, <laughs> no, people like, they pass like ex like intense artistic judgment on a tasting menu in yeah. a way that like, I think you don't in an a la carte scenario. You're like, was this worth my time and money? And that's weird right. though, the pizza slice thing, because I, I remember the first time I ever ate at Alinea, which is a many, many hour, extraordinarily meticulously crafted meal. My husband and I, stopped at McDonald's on the way home. Like we literally did a drive through and got a cheeseburger because we were hungry. But I think that was a testament to how well paced the meal was. Yeah. I think you want to leave with an ample sufficiency is the word that we throw around <laughs> our kitchen quite often. You want to feel like you're totally satisfied. You don't want for anything, but you still feel good. Um, and you know, after 10 courses of anything, even if they're small courses, it's a lot of food, you know, like it's, it's always interesting to me to hear those stories where people left and they had to stop for something else to eat because I think, goodness, if you put all that food on one plate, the 25, even if it's 25 bites, 25 bites is a lot of bites to take, right? Like if you put all that on one plate, that's a huge plate of food, but it's possible to still be hungry at the end of it, which is um, a fascinating part of it, you know, because as a chef, you're trying to figure out and of course, different food leaves you feeling a different way. You serve somebody red meat, that's wagyu beef, that's going to make them feel very differently than um, a raw sea scallop, you know. So that's trying to trying to get that right, I think, is a real craft. The feel, the way that you feel as you're going through it. Well, you do this fascinating thing at Maud, which uh, has, how often do you change the menu there? Monthly? We change it every month, yeah. And it's built around a theme each yeah. month, which is so creatively terrifying to me. 
to think about that. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what have what have some of your recent themes been? So we do. Um, the, it's always an ingredient, and and each ingredient um, is obviously the best of its season when we choose to do it. So right now we're cooking with cherries. Next month is um, zucchini. The month prior was garlic. Um, we've done almonds and pistachios and asparagus and morels and white truffles and black truffles. So, you know, I, th I think for me, you know, Los Angeles was the center of farm to table, right? Because we have these ridiculously good um, farmers markets and a, and a great group of farmers that are prepared to work with uh, the chefs of um, the community. So it's, a, it's like, of course, that's a great way to eat. You know, it's a great way to cook when you're at home too. You're basically buying great quality ingredients and doing very little to them so they get to shine and, and that's it, you know. Um, but I, I sort of, I thought there's something more that you can do with it. So in a way, flipping that concept on its head and taking that one ingredient when it's at its absolute best and saying, all right, let's see how many varieties we can source. Can we grow some ourselves? Now let's look at what's edible. Is the leaf, the plant, the 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 flower, the tendril, the, the stem, the seed, what's edible on it? Uh, and then what applications do we know as a group of cooks that we can put against all of those different things that we can find that live under the umbrella of garlic or zucchini or whatever um, and figure out whether we can dehydrate it and turn it into a powder? Can we shock it with nitrogen and turn it into a snow? Can we churn it into an ice cream? Can we blanch it, fry it, poach it? So I think once you sort of start working on that creativity, you, you then end up with all of what we call our elements. So you've got maybe 50 different elements and some more successful than others, some total disaster we thought we could do, but we figured out we couldn't. Um, and then uh, just looking at what else is great and threading one element or two through each course, through a 10, 12 course dinner. So um, in some ways it was quite a selfish idea because I wanted to do it, you know, like I sort of thought as a cook, that'd be a great experiment, you know, to, to be able to, to do that and to challenge yourself with it. But, you know, the, the reality of it is very different actually because you have to, this is how this is how it actually plays out. On the first of the month, you walk into a kitchen and no one knows what they're doing, right? You hand out a pack to all of the chef de parties and you explain to them, this is what your section is going to be responsible for. This is how you make it. This is the recipe, da, 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 da. So you've basically got, let's call it a week to implement it, you know, to make sure that everyone's up to speed and they have all the help and support they need. So on the first day of the month, we don't open. We just do a day of prep and everybody works through the sections and we do a tasting for the front of house team and sort of work with them. And then the rest of that week, we open. We don't open on the Tuesday, the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We spend, you know, getting up to speed and getting it right. And then I've sort of got between the 7th and the 14th to write the next menu because if I don't get it written within that week, when I say written, developed and in my head, I then have to construct the recipes because when you walk into a new kitchen, into a kitchen with, you know, new ideas, you need to give people something that they can refer to, right? Um and then if I'm not sort of, if I don't have it all written and do the tasting for the front of house team, then they don't get to, they don't get to choose the wine in time. We do the first tasting and then two days later we do the second tasting where they actually bring the wine and we taste the wine with the food. So by the 21st of the month, if we don't have it sort of locked off, then they can't place their orders and get a two dozen of this and three dozen of that to, to actually make the pairing work. So... What felt like it would be this beautiful sort of romantic um, 
concept, which it started out that way. And then it turned into like this creative treadmill that you can never get off. And you're like, all right, we've got to constantly drive and create. And we've, we've worked with the team to sort of try and figure out how unique, because you need to have some clear space in your brain to be able to think of that stuff. You can't just do it while you're in the middle of service. You can't be working on zucchinis while you're serving cherries, if you know what I mean. No, I mean, this sounds like a like a, a recurring nightmare that I have, right? Like just like <laughs> the logistic snowball building up and building up and building up and eventually crushing me. I'm glad you're pulling it off. Like. <laughs> We're two and a half years in. So when you, we, we sit around and joke about how many dishes that is, you know, how many months have we done and how many dishes that, that adds up to be and then how many components of the dishes that we've, you know. Um, and look, I think the, the, the amazing thing is we end up with a team of young guys that come in there and they learn something new all the time, you know, and a, a month's just long enough to perfect something and then you throw it away and you start trying to perfect the next thing. Um, and, and also the fact that you have to put a garlic into a dessert, you know, and the, the young cooks that we have are like, God, I've never seen anyone put garlic in a dessert. And I'm like, yeah, I haven't either. I <laughs> probably didn't ever want to, but we, you know, under the constraints of our idea, we've got to, we've got to do it. And you learn a lot along the way, which is cool. So yep. how, do you, how do you create space in your brain to keep that train running and then open Gwen, which is twice the size and a very different vibe. We have a separate test kitchen that I've, I've always worked from, um, which truthfully, it's been a house uh, with a nice backyard. So we've sort of been able to play in different parts of this house. We obviously pulled the kitchen out and put it, put a nice uh, kitchen in that sort of makes a bit more sense for a chef. But the idea of uh, – so we'll centralise that development kitchen that will work for both Gwen and um, Maud. And to me, this was always a collaboration between me and my team rather than just, you know, me. I think those days where a chef just screamed and barked orders and, and sort of directed everybody else, I, I think it's really limiting, to be honest, because if you if you have that attitude, which is that old school way of doing it um, – you, you, you never improve. You only know what you know unless you're working on stuff yourself. Uh, and I always wanted to collaborate with um, great guys, you know, so and I've found an incredible team. You know, we've sort of back from people that used to work with me in London and a couple from Australia and people that we've uh, met, you know, in New York and Los Angeles. Um, but Justin Hilbert is uh, the chef with me at Maud. Oh, he's great. Yeah, he's really great. He was in New York for a while. Right. So he opened Gwinnett Street yeah. in Brooklyn. Super Greg's talented Greg's face guy. is so excited I right just now. Remember, I remember a meal that he cooked that was out of this world where it was like the first time I'd had tobacco as like a seasoning for something other than, you know, my lungs or whatever. But... Um, <laughs> So he he went through a thing in New York where, um, as we've all done as chefs, got into a deal with somebody or got into a, a situation, that situation changed. And he sort of, he'd gone through it a couple of times with Gwinnett Street and then this next one. Um, and he called me and he said, I just want to come and be the pastry chef. I, I just, I love pastry. I don't want any responsibility apart from what I'm going to order for the next day. And I just want to come out there and get a bit of sunshine. And he, he did, he came and he, he did pastry with me for 12 months. And, uh, you know, I love the way he develops pastry. And then we started working on savory ideas and stuff together. And he's uh, a super talented dude, very creative. Nothing's ever good enough for him in his own mind. He's super self-critical. I think that's an attribute that all good chefs have. Um, and uh, he, uh, yeah, so he's sort of taking the reins with me uh, in a much bigger way. And I'll um, spend, be able to then spend some more time at, uh, at Gwen. 
So where did it all start for you? Like, why did you get into cooking in a restaurant? Did you want to do fine dining stuff? Did you have some other sort of inspiration as a young as a young guy there? It's funny because, I mean, I'm telling you my age, but when I started cooking, none of this existed, right? Like, there was no food media. There was no – there was literally no celebrity chefs. There was – you know, it, it was, so it wasn't even a possibility. It wasn't a reason to uh, – to enter the industry. It's changed very fast, you know. I'm I mean, you worked with one of the first celebrity chefs, I'd argue. Right. Yeah, no, you're right, actually. You know, I, I, I did my apprenticeship in Melbourne. I always remember the very first day I put my chef's uniform on because I, I love to cook. And I had a mate who had a dad that was a chef and he'd sort of come home late and he'd get up late and he sort of like had like a bit more of a rock and roll lifestyle to the bankers and finance people who were the, the dads of the other buddies that I had. They'd all wear a suit and have to be out the door on time and this guy sort of just seemed a bit cooler and I think that was kind <laughs> of what um, I liked about him. He had long hair and, you know, like back then it was sort of pretty different. <clears throat> um so I decided to become a cook and I, I, I went and put my uniform on, you know, when we wore the gingham pants and the long white aprons and the big tall boy hats and the neckerchief. The neckerchief really got me. That was pretty special. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, what am I doing? Like, who am I? You know, I look so weird. It was such a weird uniform. It's a costume, yeah. Yeah, it's a total <laughs> costume. Um, and it was super uncool at that point, you know, like I played Aussie rules football and I can remember going back to the club and then, you know, I, I kind of got ridiculed for, for being a cook because it was sort of, um, you know, like these macho, macho footy players sort of saw it as a bit girly, I guess. Um, what were they doing? Oh, uh, you know, like other crafts, plumbers and electricians and, you know, football teams aren't made of brain surgeons usually. Um, <laughs> but you know, that cooking wasn't cool right. you know, back then. Um, for a young guy to, to get into, I guess, at least, you know, where I grew up. And then I suppose I just sort of, and I hated it for the first 12 months, if I'm being really honest. I'd worked in a big hotel and it was just this boring, mundane, peeling onions, peeling potatoes, peeling carrots, slicing onions. You know, like slicing onions was a step up from the rest of the work that I was doing. And you'd literally go home with sore fingers that you'd cut and just smell of onions and it was just a pretty dull job. Uh, and then I worked, um, so I worked for at a year at this hotel, five-star hotel. So, you know, you think, oh, that's probably the best place for me to go. Uh, and then, um, they had a buffet in one of the restaurants and I'd have to go out and be the guy that stands there and slices the meat for people on the buffet. No was, way. Yeah, really? Super depressing. You were the carver. I was the carver. Um, I think I've still got some photos of that, uh, that Did, time in my life. So in that scenario, are there anybody who's like, oh, give me a little bit more of that or like, yeah. oh, I want the that part. And you just <laughs> had to smile and go along with oh, it. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, the worst thing was it wasn't even a busy restaurant. So if you were working in a busy buffet, it might be more entertaining. But when there was no one in the dining room and you're just sort of standing there in front of your roast pork, there's nothing much to do. So it was pretty depressing. Um, but And the hotel – went under. They actually went into receivership, which was great because I got a month's wage. I got I was going to say, like, you didn't slice that meat fast enough. That's you know? right. I was slicing <laughs> it too fast. Um, yeah, no, things went things went under for the hotel. And then uh, and then I got a job at the Savoy and worked for this really great German chef who was tough and I loved it. You know, I sort of really enjoyed the discipline of it. Um, and it was, it was kind of like, I, I mentioned I played competitive sport was kind of like playing a competitive sport. And at the start, you're not very good. You know, you're slow and you're clumsy and your hands aren't fast enough and everybody else is better than you, you know, which to me was a real challenge. Um, 
And he sort of really mentored me through to understand that if you want to be a great chef, you're going to have to go and work in Europe and you're going to have to go and work for a badass, you know, someone really tough. And about the same time I come, I came across Marco Pierre White's first cookbook, um, which sort of portrays him as a psycho and you read it and you're <laughs> like, oh my God, I want to, I want to get in this team, you know, like how do I go over there? Um, so I did, I went over and worked for him and spent eight years in his kitchens and um, the book was all true. Yeah, you <laughs> don't seem that damaged. Well, you know what? <laughs> I got to London and I had no money, uh, so I sort of had no option but to make sure that I didn't get fired because I had to eat. You know, I was staying at a friend's house. I slept on a couch on, on a, in a pub for the first six months of being there and, you know, like you're trying to get enough money to actually get your own shared room in an apartment, which I did. Um, and it's sort of – it's about survival at that point, you know what I mean? So you, once you figure out what it's – you know, what makes him crazy and what doesn't. You just stay away from what makes him crazy and it was all right. So you landed in the Marco Pierre White empire when he was a full-blown celebrity at that point. Yeah, I mean, he sort of, in in some ways, he was infamous as opposed to famous, you know, like he, he sort of, he did everything wrong, which made it all right, you know, like he'd throw his guests out and he'd, you know, he'd, he, he, he was uh, um, a total rebel, but he was on our side, if you know what I mean. So yeah. it was he was a celebrity of a different... He's an anti-hero. Yeah. Well, it's also, you know, he was one of the first chefs to, like, people knew who he was more than they knew about his food. Right. right? And, like the person like the persona of the chef was the thing that led the restaurant. And his food, I mean, I've, I've never had the privilege, but, like, his food was, I mean, you know, groundbreaking and fantastic. But he was so huge as a character. He still is that it really sort of ushered in you know like you said before greg like one of the very first celebrity chefs because he just clawed his way into being a celebrity i don't know if that's even what he wanted did he want fame no he wanted the opposite yeah he wanted to be left alone so he could cook he was just telling people to fuck off and the more he did the more they, the paid more attention they loved to it him. yeah that's what's so crazy i mean he, he would get phone calls all the time they'd call the kitchen you know back before managers and publicists and all that stuff existed in our business at all and he'd, you know, people would literally phone the kitchen and we'd answer it because sometimes our fruit and veg suppliers would call us to tell us that the zucchini flowers weren't arriving, you know, and we, you'd answer the phone. They're like, oh, I'm the producer of this or that. And, you know, he'd be like, tell them to fuck off. And we would, you know, it was kind of this like liberating thing that he had all this attention and he didn't want any of it. And people were coming into our restaurant and spending a lot of money, you know, like he, he built this beautiful wine list and... We'd have people come in and spend five thousand, ten thousand pounds on a bottle of wine, and it would, you know, like that sort of energy would travel back into the kitchen. That you know, we were sort of a hot ticket in town, and it was, um, it was cool. So, what you, what's like the most important thing you learned about running a kitchen from from working, you know, as part of his his group there, his team? I think you know what he did really well was his attention to details like no one I've ever seen, you know, and, and, and still I wish mine was the same as his, you know, like he, he doesn't miss a beat. So as one of one of his cooks, you, you know, you, you just know that you can't get away with anything. And even if you can't avoid having something that he's going to see as you cutting a corner, he'll find it, you know, and he, and he always managed to. Um, so he, he was just super thorough. Uh, but I think more than anything, what I really learned from him is if you want to empower a team, you've got to lead it, you know, and you've, you've got to be present. And he was, you know, like <laughs> sometimes more present than we would have wished. But, <laughs> um, yeah, he was, he was literally like, he, we'd literally find him sleeping in the, 
dining room sometimes. We'd try and sneak into the restaurant early and then Marco be asleep on the banquette, you know. So um, he was he was married to it and he, you know, he was obsessive with it. That's inspiring. <laughs> That's inspiring. <laughs> I don't want to uh, sleep at the office, but I do feel like there's a management yeah. lesson there. <laughs> so uh, at a certain point in your career, you know, what was what was the first phone call about doing a television? Yeah, I mean, it feels like you had this sort of like, you know, you were a cook and then suddenly you became a media figure. Right. Well, I, I worked in a couple of Marco's restaurants and he had a, um, they lost a Michelin star at Quavadas. Oof, I wouldn't want to have been there that day. That's right. So Were uh, you there, there that day? There were some changes made. No, I was working with him at the Cafe Royale. Um, so he sent me there, you know, with the instruction to go and get the star back, which is always a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, sure. I'll look for <laughs> it. Got it, boss. I'll look for it high and low. Um, so I... I sort of became the head chef of this like really well-established restaurant um, and I was young, you know, I was probably a bit too young when I think about it, but somebody wrote a book called London's Finest Chefs and I was one of the chefs in that book and and as a part of that book, they asked us to do some morning segments to promote it. We There was, you know, these great chefs, John Burton Race and, you know, guys that I'd really admired, you know, in my career over there and then, and me and... Uh, so we had to do a book signing, which, you know, as a, a guy that was three months ago, a sous chef somewhere, it was a pretty bizarre thought. But um, I did a morning segment and then they asked me to come back and do another one. And then from that, somebody asked me if I'd do... The first ever show I did was called Dinner in a Box. And uh, it was about somebody trying to do a dinner party at home um, and having trouble with it. So then I would show them how to create those dishes and pack the ingredients up in a box and they'd then send them home with the cameras and see whether they could pull it off or not. And I did that for like this little cable channel in the UK and, you know, one thing just led to another and it sort of just kept happening. Did you think it was easy or fun or was it a totally different experience or...? It's so different. It's it's almost like the opposite of what we do. You know, in the in a restaurant you do something wrong and someone comes over and says, that's wrong, this is how it should be done. Don't fuck it up again and they leave, you know. In the television business, you do something that's wrong and they come over and say, that's fabulous. It was so great. <laughs> We're going to do it again, but it was really, really good. And <laughs> This is what I find so fascinating. Anytime you talk with anybody who's worked on food TV, the amount of detail that goes into like shooting one segment, it just blows my mind. And the bullshit for the feedback, right? right? Yeah. The, yeah. Like, this is totally perfect. Nothing is wrong. Just do it in a different way. Right. Right. And you also go from being the boss of a restaurant to suddenly you're just a piece of the puzzle and you're getting told what to do and you're not calling the shots, which is like a, um, you know, you, you, you need to learn a little humility if you want to do it, which is, uh, which is, I think it's good for you actually. I feel like we, we talk a lot with people on this show about like the new generation of chefs that are coming up who went to culinary school with the intention of becoming famous, right? Like this is right. the first gener the first post-celebrity chef generation of culinary students and chef aspirants. And that's a really good point, right? Like the things that make you a good head of a restaurant kitchen are probably the opposite of the things that make you a good TV celebrity. And sure. like holding both of them in your head at the same time is probably more than some star-yed 24-year-old can handle. It's a really interesting topic because you sort of, if you think about... Um celebrity chefs, television, TV competition shows, all this stuff that's happened, it's shone this big light on our industry, which has made it famous somehow, right? And suddenly cooks are cool. Um, and it's amazing because it means we have people coming into our industry. But to your point, they're coming in for sometimes for the wrong reason and they get in there and they're like, well, I don't want to 
peel those bags of onions like I was complaining about earlier. Um, but, you know, you don't just get given the gift of being able to use a knife properly. You, you get it from practice, right? And it's uh, um, t- kitchens are historically a really tough place to work in. And, you know, you have these kids coming through that want to be the next contestant on Top Chef. But, you know, what they've got to realise first is that um, there's all these steps to it. So I think what's happened is we've got more people coming into the industry but with a bigger dropout rate. Um, And I think, you know, what we have to do as an industry is start taking it seriously. You know, I've been sort of – since we opened in in LA with Maud, we've included service in – a compulsory service charge and we pay our – salaries very differently than most people. And um, it's a bit of a hot topic in the industry right now. And I, I, and I feel really strongly about it. And it's for the same reasons. Like, yes, we need to, we, we're, we're quickly losing and de-skilling our industry beyond repair. And we've got to stop it and be able to fix it or it's gone. Because once those skills are gone, they're gone. You don't just pick up a book and get them back, you know. And what I've been noticing more and more, I've just employed 50 people for this new restaurant. And every second person that I employed in the front of house was saying, well, I started off as a cook, right? You know, I, I started my career in the kitchen and they quickly learned that in the kitchen, they might be earning 10 or 11 or 12 bucks an hour. Um, but the waiters are earning 250 bucks a night because of the tips they're making. And you only do that for a certain amount of time before you're like, you know what, I'm going to go and work on the other side because there's just more money in it. And you know, when you, we're lucky because we were able to start something and say, this is just how we're going to do it. We don't need to employ a huge staff. You know, we didn't have any precedence that we needed to change. But I have conversations all the time with chefs that are like, I'd love to do it, but I don't know, you know, I'd lose my entire team because I'd have to say to them, you're no longer going to earn, you know, X amount of money on the floor because if a busy restaurant, lots of tips means the waiters get paid a lot of money. You know, we also have this blockage where captains will never become management because they'll go from earning a hundred grand a year to seventy-five grand a year. You know, so it's like we hold we hold ourselves back um, for the very same reason. And you know, getting back to like chefs coming into the industry because of television, I'm, my my attitude is let's just get them in, no matter how we get them in, um, because we're facing a real crisis, you know, and I think once we get them in, it's our jobs to have really strong mentors that really take people on and really show them the right way and the wrong way to do stuff. And hopefully we can convert as many of them as we can into to good cooks. Do you have like a, a process, like a mentorship training philosophy that you bring to that? Yeah, look, we, we don't have anything super structured um, like that. We're still like a tiny, and, <laughs> and, and until next week, we're still only a 24 seat restaurant. Then we'll, we'll grow a little bit and I hope to sort of bring more, more structure to it. But, you know, we, we sort of, our attitude is we hire on attitude, not on experience because, you know, you can always teach someone the certain elements of cooking that you want them to have, but you can't teach them to come to work on time and you can't teach them to enjoy what they do and want to learn. You know, they're just things that you either have or you don't. So, you know, and we make that really clear from the start. You know, we sort of, we say, if you've got the right attitude, we can harness that, you know, and if you don't, then we can't. So, um, you know, we're strict in terms of what we accept and don't accept by in terms of people's, you know, attitudes and behavior. But, uh, we, you know, we're super, uh, 
nurturing in terms of what we give them as well in terms of the education. So you've had an interesting path within the arc of American culinary celebrity, which is that you were, when Maud opened, was it now a year and a half, two years ago? Two and a half years. Two and a half years ago. That was your first U.S. restaurant, right? Right. And how long, and you've, but you've been famous here for far longer. And I think, you know, for most celebrity chef trajectories, it kind of goes the other way, right? It's restaurant first, and then you drop the restaurant and go onto TV. And you did the backwards game. And what was, what was funny and were were the like the backhanded compliments, right? After (laughs) Maud opened and people were like, it's actually really good. Right. (laughs) You know, like here's this, you know, handsome Australian chef who's on TV and who I totally adore. And I think that as American TV viewers, we have been primed to assume that if you're on TV, you're not very good at what you're doing. Like if you're a TV chef, you're not actually good with a knife. And then you open this place and you blew everyone away. And, you know, for the most part, it's not wildly inaccurate to think that, you know, like most people that are on television are on television um, with little base in high-end gastronomy, you know, and um, it's just a part of it. You know, like I, I, I can remember feeling like, do I have a big point to prove here? Like, is that why I'm doing this? Because, you know, everyone knows you open a 24-seat restaurant. It's not to get rich. Um, I just missed exercising that muscle, you know, and sure, there's probably a little part of me that's got something to prove and wants to, you know, as much to myself as anybody else. Um, and I think if you're any good at what you do, you constantly drive yourself to improve, you know? And I think, you know, there's a old saying, if you get a lot from something, you've got to give a lot back. And if you don't get much from it, you don't have to. Uh, I've had a lot from food and cooking, you know, I've traveled the world and worked with some incredible people. I've made some money and, um, I've been really fortunate and I, I, I want to respect that and nurture it rather than just take from it. You know, do you think there was an extra focus on mod because, uh, that kind of restaurant is rarer in Los Angeles than in, say, other cities like San Francisco or New York, the super small, you know, fine dining. Yeah, look, I think it's really different for L.A. Nothing like that had ever existed, with the exception of Twamek, actually. Ludo opened a place um, right around the same time as we opened Maud, and it's right around the same size, and it's also a tasty menu, and um, and it's also great. You know, he does a really, really good job. Uh so it was interesting that two of us sort of had a similar idea and I can remember looking at spaces and they were saying, oh, we just had this other French guy in here look at this. And I was like, oh, which, which French guy? And, you know, we sort of knew How many that- French, big you French guys guy were like circling there. each yeah. other. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think what LA has never had is an incredible world-class restaurant. It's had good restaurants, and I'm not being disrespectful because I have a lot of respect for those guys that have good restaurants in LA, but there's never been the Per Se or the French Laundry or the 11 Madison Park. You know, it's just never existed out there. Um, so when you think about bringing a real world-class restaurant to LA, you know, you, you're confronted with all of these opinions of that's not the LA diner, that's not, you know, LA diners always bring their own wine to restaurants. Well, that's not how gastronomic restaurants make money. You know, so you're sort of confronted. They'll never accept a $250 menu price. You know, so you sort of think, and don't forget, like when you open a restaurant, at least I invested my own money in in my restaurant, right? So Maud cost me just over a million bucks. And you sort of, you think to yourself, 
if I lose, which is really possible, right? Like if people don't come, then you lose. <laughs> it's that simple. You know, like at some point your expenses are more than your revenue. And if that happens uh, for, you know, a number of weeks or months, then you're out of business. And if you're out of business, you don't, no one gives you your million bucks back. You know, it's gone. Right. But do you think that that hypothesis about like the LA diner is true? Like, is that why there isn't a per se or French laundry or 11? I mean, like now there are places like Twamek and like, and like Maud that are these small tasting menu places, but there isn't the the palace of gastronomy that we have in other cities. I don't, I think that there wasn't, but I think now there is. So if I look back, I think if you had have tried what we're doing 10 years ago, you probably would have failed. But I think what's happened in Los Angeles is there's been this total change of attitude. You used to be able to go to an LA restaurant and open the menu and see You'd think to yourself, should I even open it or should I just order? Because I know what's on it. You know, there's two steaks, there's a chicken breast, there's a Chilean sea bass. It was the most boring thing you've ever experienced. And, you know, now you go and there's restaurants that are serving all sorts of stuff, you know, and, and we've opened up different channels of getting things. We've always had the best ingredients in the world, quite frankly, you know, like they just are. It's, it's amazing out there. Um, they have these incredible microclimates and great attitudes from the local farmers. But, you know, now that the diner is more experimental with it, um, then the chefs have really risen to that occasion. So um, I think it's changed. It's still changing. There's still more room. Of course, there's more room. But we sold a $275 menu for, of white truffles and it sold out in seven minutes and we sold it a month um, you know we sold it the month prior so it's sort of if the diners are prepared to spend the money and commit to you know like I ask myself would I be prepared to commit to a 5.30 reservation on a Wednesday night 45 days from now probably not you know like it's <laughs> so why do you think people's attitudes are changing I think there's always I don't know. It's it's a really good question. Like what comes first? Is it the supply or the demand, right? Like I think I think it's sort of always been there because we we have diners that travel a lot. They're in New York and they're in Chicago and they're in Miami and London and, you know, beyond. And they come in and they tell me about the restaurant experiences they've had. So they they've obviously been prepared to spend the money over there and 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 you know, pony up to a 4-hour experience in a restaurant there. So why not at home in Los Angeles. It's a casual city, you know, It's there's lots of sunshine, but, you know, maybe the, the local LA media has told us for so long in LA that we're so good at tacos and Korean food that that's where we should play. Um, and I don't know that that's the truth. You know, I think that there's more to the city than that. And, you know, there's been all this discussion recently as to whether the Michelin Guide should have come to LA or not. And, um, I mean, I would love the Michelin Guide to come to Los Angeles because I think that they drive the city of chefs to do better and to work harder and to to give them something to sort of uh, compare themselves to, even if it's just their performance from the year before. I went from one star to two star. Okay, I'm doing better. I went from two stars to one star. I'm not doing good enough, you know. Marco Pierre White is going to send you to get that star back. <laughs> <laughs> Curtis, it's Marco. <laughs> I noticed you lost a star. Fuck you. Get it. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. I mean, LA, man. I mean, I, I feel like it is one of these huge food cities in the world right now. I mean, it's like the raw culinary matter of LA mm. was just so ripe and it was lying there for so long. And now it's all like coming to fruition. It's so true. It's so exciting. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, I, 
I was talking about zucchinis before. I've got 13 varieties of zucchini in my garden at home right now that we've been playing with for um, this new restaurant. And then I spoke to a zucchini grower who's growing me another 23. So we'll, we'll, we'll have 32 different types of zucchini to play with for a zucchini menu. And I just don't know that anybody else, like I, I can't think of another place that I've ever had that opportunity. You know, like in London, you don't even meet your farmers. You know, you, your farmers are so far removed. And it's interesting being up in New York these last couple of days and talking to a bunch of friends that are chefs and have restaurants. And it feels like there's so much pressure right now on New York. The rents are higher than ever. The business levels seem a little softer than they should be. And there's just like this really intense pressure on, are we going to be okay? You know, are we going to make it? Are we, you know? Um, and in LA, there's a really different feel. It feels like it's a totally different economy. It feels like, you know, the restaurants are busier than ever. The, our diners are behaving better than we've ever had them behave. <laughs> um, the ingredients are everywhere. There seems like there's way more talent that there's ever been, you know, just going through this process of employing a bunch of people. I've got guys coming out from Chicago and New York and these great culinary cities with really strong backgrounds and, you know, they're excited to come out to, to a, new, a new home. So it's, um, it's an exciting time in LA for sure. Curtis, we have come to the part of this interview that we like to call the lightning round. Yes. Um, we're just going to ask you a couple of questions. You can say whatever you want in response to them. Awesome. Uh, question number one, what was your weirdest reality TV moment? Um, I did a show called Celebrity Apprentice. <laughs> How and did we not spend the whole conversation on that? You know what? It's pretty amazing to me. I look at myself in the mirror sometimes and just can't believe it. Um, <laughs> Do you wake up in the middle of the night like having a night terror about it? I, the truth is I went broke when I got out here to LA because I did a bit of television and then the t then I didn't get another TV show and I didn't have any money to buy a restaurant. So I was like, what do I do? Do I go and work in a restaurant? Or So I just sort of fumbled through it for a little while um, and nothing really came up. It was right at the um, GFC and then I got offered the Celebrity Apprentice and I was like, you know what? I'll do it. <laughs> I've got nothing else to do. And, you know, there was a couple of dollars in it for me. So I went and did it. And then suddenly you find yourself in a room with Brett Michaels, Cindy Lauper, Donald Trump, Bill Goldberg, the governor from Chicago that is now in prison, Bogoyevich. And I was like, I'm the oh. only normal person here. Like no one else is normal. You know, do you think they were all, all thinking crazy. that too? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Cindy Lauper is looking around the room Rob and like, Blue look Boy at all these. Yeah. Oh, Rob Lagoy just had the worst hair of any politician yeah, ever. That's strange. But I think they all just thought that maybe I worked there because they're like, no one knew who I was. They, they all were significantly um, more famous than me. And I was just sort of this normal chef guy. Is in the it corner. really weird for you to watch the election unfold because of your previous <laughs> experience with Trump? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I imagine that's surreal. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like he's really got a shot at being the president, which is interesting on so many levels, you know, like he's... He's got a better shot than any of us. That's very true. It's a very di diplomatic way of putting it. It's interesting on so many levels. Okay, so I have a lightning round question. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry, that wasn't uh, a very... Yeah, no, 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 this, this is a lot. There's a lot going on in this lightning, <laughs> lightning round. Um, on the fourth hour of the Today Show, real wine in the wine glasses? Yes. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. I was always under the assumption it was not. No, no, it's real. That's early for wine. But I mean, I is it though? That's what I like yeah. about it. If you're a parent that's been up since super early, you know, 10 a.m. is not the worst time to tip back a glass of wine. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it. All right, all right. I'm not going to judge. <laughs> I, I retract my I retract my skepticism. <laughs> um, um, our next lightning round question: If you're driving alone in a convertible, blasting music and singing along, what are you singing along to? Oh my god. Um, 
I wouldn't be driving around in convertible blasted music and singing, but why not? <laughs> if I was, um, I would listen to the Sex Pistols. Really? Yeah. All right. That's fun to sing yeah. along to. Kind of. Sing-ish. If you're driving very fast. Yeah. Um, well, that's, sort that's of the thing. Angry. Um, if you had to give a piece of advice to someone who wanted to become a restaurant chef and you had to give a piece of advice to someone who wanted to become a TV chef, what would you say to each of them? I'd tell the restaurant chef that they should go to culinary school. I think it's important. Um, and I think that we should take our industry as seriously as we can. doesn't mean that you can't be a good chef if you haven't been to culinary school, but I think it helps. Um, and I'd tell them that they should think about where they, what kind of restaurant they end up seeing and, uh, you know, owning, seeing themselves owning and go work in a similar one, you know, because that, that'll give them a really good um, taste for it. Someone once said to me, the only difference between a dream and um, a goal is a plan. And it's very true. Like if you don't have a plan, it's just a dream. But if you actually put a plan behind the dream, then it becomes a goal and something that you can achieve. So I what does a young cook have to do if they want to work for Curtis Stone? At, at wait, wait, Ma no, I want the TV chef advice. Oh, sorry. I want yeah. to be a TV chef. This is a lightning round. Stay focused. It's like an inception lightning round. <laughs> Very so slow moving lightning. Yes, if you want to be a TV chef. <laughs> What's the advice for them? So the food industry has grown so much in the media, right? There's test kitchens all over the joint. There's people that you know, do this. I have a test kitchen and we develop stuff and photograph it um, occasionally. But, you know, there's Bon Appetit and Severe and I don't have to go through them all, but there's, you know, there's lots of uh, ways to, to work as a food stylist or home economist, recipe editor. So I would actually suggest that you'd look into that first first off and then you, you sort of, you're already within the media um, uh and you don't necessarily need to be a great chef. You know, it, it can help and there's certainly jobs out there for those people, but you don't necessarily need to be a great chef. So I think getting a taste for what that food media is all about is probably the best place to start. That's really good advice. That's like really good advice. Thanks. Like get into the media industry. Keep asking questions. I've got lots. <laughs> so back to my, my interruption question. Sorry, if somebody sorry. wants to work, if a young chef wants to work for Curtis Stone... What do they got to do? What, what are you looking for? They just have to have a good attitude. That's it. I'll take anybody in. I really will. I mean, sometimes your kitchen's full and you just don't have space. But um, right now I've got space. So if you have a good attitude and you want to come work for me, just uh, come see me in LA. Walk in the back door. <laughs> well, Curtis, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for coming by the beautiful Eater Upsell Studios. Yeah, thanks, Curtis. Thanks for having me. This was fun. The Eater Upsell is recorded in Vox Media's exquisitely beautiful Midtown Manhattan studios. Your hosts are Greg Morvito and me, Helen Rosner. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. Our producers are Patrick Bulger and Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our studio team is Miles Yule and Alex Ulreich. And of course, the most important person involved in the creation of all of this is you. Yes, you. Thank you, beautiful listener, for being who you are. <laughs>